That's a neat hymn, don't you think? He lives. We don't want to portray Jesus just as a dead Christ. Often you'll see that in some churches. Uh, I went to Rome and uh, saw lots of statues of a dead Christ, but he's a living Christ. He's living, he's ministering in heaven, and he will soon come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to gather his children together. Uh, again, we'd like to welcome you here. Some of you uh, who I've not met before are here perhaps for the first time. And we are concluding a series in the book of Acts. So take a Bible, and I wish I could give you a text to look at, as I normally do. And um, I really don't have one. Perhaps in chapter 28, verse 15, as we mentioned last week, and so we came to Rome. So the action is around Rome, and we're talking about uh, the Apostle Paul uh, winding up his ministry in the great city of Rome. At this time, the Romans ruled the then-known world, and Nero was Caesar. So today we will see Paul and Nero face to face. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we open your word, as we proclaim these truths, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see meaning in these texts. Show us how to uh, learn from a godly Christian like Paul. Help us to see something of your hand in these affairs and help us to be strengthened and um, give us the passion and the love for you that Paul had is our prayer in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, let me do a little bit of a quick summary to help you to get a context to what we're going to deal with today and then we will jump into uh, the rest of the sermon. Having been through 28 chapters, if I asked each one of you to write down a brief sentence what the book of Acts is about, I'd probably have a different answer from all of you. And many of those answers would be good answers. I think what I would run with, and that I think fits in very well with today's message, is that God is sovereign. God is in charge of his universe. And he has a plan, and he has a purpose, and he fulfilled that plan and purpose through somebody like the Apostle Paul. Paul has loomed very large on the pages of the book of Acts. He is a type of Christ. Not that Paul died for us, no, I don't mean that, but many of the features in the life of Christ we have already seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. And today, we will see another feature. We will see his sufferings leading to his death. And of course, we saw that, we have seen that uh, all the way through the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ suffering, and then the significance of his death. And it seemed that no matter what Satan did against Paul and against the Christians, somehow, some way, the gospel kept moving forward. 
It's been said that the seed of Christians, the blood of Christians is like seed. And today we will, we will see some of that happening. When it seemed that this man would be destroyed, perhaps with a shipwreck in chapter 27, then an angel would appear to him. And the angel would say to him, Paul, uh, all, all on this ship will be saved. And you will appear before Caesar. You will go to Rome, no matter what Satan tries to do. No matter what man does, God's purpose was for Paul to go to Rome. Of course, it was his desire too, though he never dreamed in his wildest dreams that he would be going as a prisoner. And then when he eventually appeared in Rome, Remember, he had lit, written the letter to the Romans. So who would want to see Paul more than those Christians in Rome, but then they saw him coming as a prisoner? That must have been very, very hard for them to understand the plans and the purposes of God. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is just a refresher course for some of you. When Paul tells of his conversion story on the Damascus Road, Ananias is reminded by the Lord that Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name, to be my witness, which by the way means martyr. To be my witness, to carry my name before the Gentiles. Has Paul done that? Oh, you're not very sure. Do you think he didn't complete his work? Did Paul do that? Nobody did it better. We shouldn't hesitate on, on answering a question like that. Yes, he did. And he would not, he would not uh, surrender that commission, no matter what Peter did. By shunning the Gentiles, Paul would take him on face to face because the, the gospel going to the Gentiles is part of the plan and the purposes of God. And even somebody like Peter cannot get in the way of that. So take my name before the Gentiles and their kings, which would include Nero, and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, and suffer he did. Sometimes when I see the lack of suffering for us Christians, I wonder whether we really even can understand the concept of what it means to suffer for Christ. Of course, we suffer in different ways, my first day of being a Christian, I had to go to the same workmates. The day before, I was not a Christian. This particular day, I was a Christian. You can imagine the, the way I was treated when they figured out that, and I couldn't wait to tell them all about Jesus and what Jesus had done for me. So I knew something a little bit about persecution from day one. Well, when Paul was hauled before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, eventually because of the Jews trying to destroy him, he said, I appeal to Caesar, who was Nero. Ouch, just the very thought hurts me. It's like appealing to Hitler, to Stalin. This is a dictator. This is a man who can raise his eyebrows or give the thumb sign and your life would be over. If Nero wanted to take your wife, he took her. If you objected, you died. Lisa said a little bit 
about what a rascal Nero was. I think you would haul me out of the pulpit if I told you a fraction of his life from this pulpit. He was the epitome of a man who Satan was controlling. And yet this is the man that Paul appealed to. And so his answer came, to Caesar you will go. And then of course on that shipwreck, an angel of God says, you must stand trial before Caesar. So as I understand this, God's purpose is that Paul goes to Rome, that Paul witnesses to Caesar, to Nero, and to whoever was at that trial. And by the way, the Bible does not give us an account of that, hence the difficulty of this sermon this morning. And yet I still want to preach it even though if I, I may need to use my imagination or the imagination of other people to reconstruct this, because clearly the Scriptures teach that Paul, you will appear before Nero, and yet we don't have any biblical record that he actually did appear before Nero. But I believe he did. The evidence seems to point in that direction. And you also heard in the children's story, Lisa, I thought you'd taken my sermon notes uh, when you went to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's somewhere where you need to kind of have your thumb in 2 Timothy 4, because we will come back to that. And <clears throat> in 2 Timothy 4, we will see the Apostle Paul getting ready for his death. So that is a very important passage too. Okay, so Paul has arrived at Rome. He's imprisoned, first under house arrest. So that was a kind of cushy imprisonment. He had two years under house arrest. Some of that I spoke about last week. He preached and he taught without hindrance, so he had a lot of freedom. The gospel would go forward. This house, Nero's, even Nero's household, many were converted from there. The gospel was advanced in Philippians 1:12. He says that these chains were used by God to advance the gospel. And also this house, this prison house where he was, became a training and an evangelistic center, a planning center for Christian mission. Let me mention some names. Some of them you'll never have heard of before, but they are there in Scripture. Luke, Aristarchus, Tychicus, Timothy, Paphroditus, Onesimus, Mark, Justus, Epaphor, Demor, Demor, and others. Don't you love it when the pastor asks you to read the scriptures and you have to read names like that? These were taught, these were trained, and these were inspired and sent out to advance the gospel. So what would seem on the surface to be a really slowing down of this gospel going into all the world 
because of this man's imprisonment, because of this man's weakness, somehow there is strength there. I want you to see that in his life because we see that in Jesus' life. This common criminal, so to speak, that's the way people would look at Jesus. Weak from his torture, from the whippings, from his lack of, of nourishment, from having the whole sins of the world laid upon him. This one who would say, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? This same one is at his strongest in his weakness. So was Paul. The gospel is spreading. People are being challenged by his imprisonment. Others are preaching boldly where they were timid before because Paul is no longer there to do it. We have to step in his place. I read a missionary story about one of our young Seventh-day Adventist students in the Philippines who uh, felt burdened to go to a headhunting group of people. He lost his life in doing that. Just a young, young man uh, lost his life. They found found his, they cut his head off, and they found, found it by the riverside. And when they explained to the students, to his classmates, um, about this tragedy, many, many hands went up, and they said, we want to take his place. We want to advance the gospel with these headhunting people. Would you and I do that? Would you and I be inspired by the weakness of a person like the Apostle Paul. And then finally on this point of his first imprisonment, those were, that was the place where he wrote what we call his prison letters. Do you know what the prison letters are? Philippians, Colossians, my favorite Ephesians, and Philemon. What do we find in Philemon? Go back to your master. What do we find in Ephesians? Christ filling the church with his presence. What do we find in Colossians? Christ in all of his deity. And in Philippians, Christ the wellspring of joy. How can you have the joy? Rejoice in the Lord how often? always, even when you're imprisoned, even when you're facing death, rejoice in the Lord always. It cuts against the grain. And yet that's Christianity at its best. Well, after this first imprisonment, this two-year house arrest, we believe that Paul was released and had something called his fourth missionary journey. And um, in my study Bible, I don't believe I have time to go into that, it gives an account of his fourth missionary journey. His desire was to go to Spain and some other places. He would go rallying the churches, strengthening the churches, and then something happened in Rome that you heard in the children's story. Rome burned. Who was responsible? 
nobody knows for sure. Many believe that Nero was responsible. And if Paul had still been in Rome when Rome burned, you can be sure he would have died earlier than he actually did. But he was let go, and he's rallying the churches, and he's continuing to spread the gospel. But we need a scapegoat, and the scapegoat became the Christians in Rome. So when we read a passage, as we did in my class this morning, in Romans chapter 8, I don't think many of us really get the gravity and the seriousness and the power of these texts. Paul is writing these texts to people that are going to die very soon. Now, I don't know that Paul knew that, and I certainly don't believe that those Christians knew that. They would just get this letter from someone called Paul, who they'd never met, and they would just try and figure it out. And those of you that have studied the book of Romans know that it's a challenging book. But it has a lot of passages, a lot of sections in the book of Romans, which are written to give you and I, to give the, the one who listens and reads the confidence and the assurance that God is really for us. He's not against us. Jesus explained it that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. You cross over from death to life. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. These are the texts we need to gather up. These are the texts that will give you backbone, that will strengthen you when the tough times come. And I know that those Romans, when the pitch is poured over them and they are set alight to illuminate the Colosseum, or when they're thrown to these ferocious animals, that they had to know for sure that God was for them and not against them. And I would wish that for every one of you in this room today. The first thing I would wish for you is that you have eternal life. The second thing that I would wish for you is that you enjoy the life that God has given you. Because sometimes we look like sad Ventist and not glad Ventist. And you become a glad Ventist, you rejoice as prisoner Paul rejoiced when he wrote Philippians because you know you stand strong in Christ. You know what Christ has done for you. The emphasis is not on your faith and your hanging on. The emphasis is on God not even hanging on to you, but you being in the palm of His hand. Can you see the difference between being in the palm of the hand of the Father and the Son and hanging on to dear life? Someone like Constantine wouldn't even be baptized until he was on his deathbed so that he wouldn't sin after being a Christian. What a travesty of the gospel. What a misunderstanding. Somebody needed to explain the gospel to Constantine because his thinking was all, all wrong. Jesus forgives our sins, past, present, future. Otherwise, there is no assurance of salvation that any of us can have. And yet I hope and I believe and I trust that many in Rome who laid their lives down did have this kind of assurance. Well, if you're gonna round the Christians up, and accuse them of burning Rome down, why not get their leader? So Paul was imprisoned again. 
and this time it would be his final imprisonment. I got some, I got found some articles on the internet about um, where they believe that Paul was imprisoned. And um, you can still go to Rome today and see this prison, supposedly. I don't know if anybody really knows for sure. But they believe if it, if it was the place where Paul was, it was an extremely dark, damp, stinking, like over a sewer type of imprisonment. It would have been awful place to be. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, He says, do your best to come to me quickly. Chapter 4, verse 9, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Why would they need the cloak? Because it was a cold, damp, dark place. And bring my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. We're not really sure who this Alexander is. He is mentioned earlier in Timothy, they think he's some, is a church member that was subject to church discipline. <clears throat> so if that's true, he really went off the deep end and strongly opposed the gospel. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. This is probably his final imprisonment where he is examined what he calls his first defense, and no decision is made. But he still has to stay in that horrible place. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side. He gave me strength. So when everyone abandons you, Jesus is there, right? And he gave me strength. So he was strengthened by the presence of Christ so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me for every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you say, when you know you're going to die, that the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack? Can you see the difference than what it appears on the surface and what's really going on here. This man knew no matter what man did to him, why should we fear man, the Scriptures teach? God is the one we should fear, the one we should respect. What can man do to me? Well, what can man do to you? Man can starve you. Man can physically hurt you, as they did with Paul many times. Man can take your loved ones away from you. 
Man can do many things to hurt you, but man cannot take, nor can Satan take, your eternal salvation away. And let's face it, folks, whatever happens to us in this world is for a short time. Most of us don't live very long. If somebody was here this morning and they were 100 years old, and I, I uh, questioned them, interviewed them, I'll guarantee that they'll probably say, it seems a very short time. It is a short time. And no matter what happens to you, good, bad, or in between, the important thing to know is God is on your side if you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, Paul's favorite phrase. Find it in pretty much all of his writings. And that nothing can separate you from his love. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. Think how, what that passage would mean to those Romans now when they're facing those ferocious animals and they're facing death. Nothing shall separate us from the Lord Jesus Christ, he says there in Romans chapter 8. Let me just turn to that real quick. If you get nothing else from this sermon today, at least you can have this passage, which is one of the greatest in all of Scripture. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, including Paul on death row, who has been called according to his purpose. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. This is Paul's greatest moment of glory in laying his life down. So it was for Jesus. Jesus says, I have not yet come into my glory. My hour is not yet come. But when it did come, John says, he was glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? Since God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, Nero certainly did, and the Romans certainly did, and the Jews were doing it all the time with Paul, charging him with this, charging him with that. But what Paul is saying here is that their charges are void because he is in Christ, and the righteousness of Christ covers everything. Who is he that condemns? Satan is one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Didn't Stephen see that on his deathbed when they were stoning him to death? He said, I see heaven open. And, the, and one like the Son of Man ministering in heaven. One like the Son of Man who's looking at Stephen and saying, he's the apple of my eye. Well, if he's the apple of your eye, why are you letting him die like this, Lord? That's the way that we think. But that's not the way the New Testament thinks. The New Testament thinks, what a privilege to die for Christ. You want to be a witness? Hugh had a class this morning on witnessing. If I told you Hugh had a class this morning on being a martyr, you wouldn't even know what I was talking about. But that's what the word means. We witness, we martyr. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Paul faced all of those things. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, not the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing, not even your sins, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I wish we would take, I wish the Anderson Church family would take those verses and believe them because not to believe them is the grossest sin you can commit. Look at the verses, claim them as your own, make them your own, it will transform your walk with Christ. You will be a strong Christian, you'll be able to rebuke Satan and he will flee from you because you're resting in the promises of God. All of this Christ did for you on Calvary when he died for the human race. Paul's <clears throat> task was to witness to these things, and he did it very, very well. So I mentioned some passage, some books to you this morning which he wrote from prison. Can you remember which they were? Philemon, you can read that one real quick. Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. Do you think it's only in Romans that he waxes eloquent like this? Go to Ephesians. I don't hear any Bibles. Any Bibles out there? Any rustling of pages? <clears throat> if you're into marking your Bible, which I no longer do because I look at all those Bibles I've marked and I can't figure my way through it all anymore, this is one of the passages as well as Romans 8. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Remember the prisoner now is writing this. He knows he's going to die. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace. When we studied Thessalonians this morning, grace and peace, here it is, and this is explaining grace to you, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we get redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is still a mystery to many Christians. We have a lot of witnessing, those in the audience that understand these things. You have a lot of witnessing to do to your fellow Seventh-day Adventists and to other Christians. To make known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head in Christ. In him you are chosen, predestined, and his plan is working everything out. And if chapter one isn't good enough, you go to chapter three. 
where you have the same lofty promises. But that's what they all are. They're promises. It's your inheritance. That's what we're reading there. It's not for just the good Christians. It's for all Christians. It's not just for the strong Christians. It's for all Christians. Where do you put yourself when God uh, grades on the curve? Where are you? Does God grade on a curve? Does he have the really, really good Christians which really get the best promises? And then those weak Christians that keep falling on their face all the time, are they going to squeeze in through those pearly gates? Or are the promises for all? For all. So you can live your Christian life focusing on your failures and allowing Satan to give you the runaround and never seeming to make much progress in this Christian life. Or you can start the process of holiness, which when God justifies, he always sanctifies. There's no separation. But if you're to progress in sanctification, if you're to become the mature Christian that God wants you to be, you've got to nail these promises down. I don't know how you do that, whether you mark them up, whether you put them on your refrigerator, you've got to get them in your head, and you've got to get them in your heart. They're yours. It's your inheritance. You have a right to them because you're choosing, you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been brought into his family. These are your promises. Well, two weeks in a row, the notes have gone on the floor. That's interesting. I can preach for five years and that never happens, and then it happens two weeks in a row. All right, I'm going to depart a little bit here. Because God in his wisdom has given us material on Paul before Rome, which is not in the Bible, or certainly not this meeting between Paul and Nero. So I'm going to lean a little bit on what other people have said. One of the first things that said is talking about the character of Nero. Lisa, I don't know if you know this, but when we do, we have quite a bit of information on Nero, historical information, and he started his, his ministry, if I can call it that, he started his service very well. He really was very good as a leader when he began, which would probably be in his 20s, because he died at 32. So as a pretty young man, he seemed to start well. But of course, all of us can think of people that start well and end up really badly. And I, I'm just not able to say from the pulpit some of the terrible things that he did. You heard a little bit earlier, murdered his mother, wife, anyone close to him, anyone he felt threatened with, on just a whim, this man could do the most perverse things imaginable. So somewhere along the line, don't know if it's because he didn't have the influence of people like Seneca, if you've ever heard about him, and get his guidance, and get his wisdom, but somewhere on the line, as a young man, he turned. 
and he turned really, really bad. If I think of someone like Paul comparing these two men, in a sense, Paul started really bad. We usually don't think of him that way, but we should. He was a religious fanatic. He was rounding the Christians up and having them executed. So he started with a lot of blood on his hands, just as Nero en ended up with a lot of blood on his hands. But Paul was forgiven. Paul somehow, some way in the plan of God, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and was used powerfully by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was a sinner like Nero. Both were sinners, both heading for hell, but somehow, some way, Paul turned to Jesus. His sins were forgiven. He was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he became, as you know, a great champion, a great leader of the Christian church. This writer says, when Paul was summoned to appear before the Emperor Nero for trial, it was with the near prospects of certain death. The serious nature of the crime against him and the prevailing animosity towards Christians left little ground for hope of a favorable issue. But we know that he was released at first and then imprisoned again, and then there was very little hope. He says in 2 Timothy, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? So you won't understand that unless you know the Old Testament and the Jewish sacrificial system. A drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. Would you say amen to that? I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. By the way, that's one of the characteristics of being a Christian, that you persevere. Pick that up in Romans 8 too. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. When is that day? What is that day? He uses this term quite a lot. On that day. What is that day? This is the day when Jesus Christ returns. It's what we call the second advent of Christ. It's even in our name, Seventh Day Adventists. So it's something we should never forget that day. It's the day when God straightens everything out. A day when he, it's a day of judgment. Judgment in favor of God's people. He gathers them together. Come, little flock, inherit the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear that from Jesus? But there's a, another group that's running to the rocks and the mountains, saying, fall down of us, hide us from the face of him that comes. Why? Because they're not in Christ. They're not covered with the righteousness of Christ. Somehow, some way, they didn't follow Jesus Christ. So we have two groups, always two groups. Those who are following Jesus and those that are following something else. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. 
matters not how good we are. It matters not if we're a really fine humanitarian. If we're not in Christ, we do not have eternal life. Praise God that Paul did. And so he can appear before Nero, and no matter what Nero does, whether the thumb is up or the thumb is down, this man knows that he is God's and God's is his. One of the most amazing things when Paul appeared before Caesar, as we've said with Felix and Festus, is that the worst of the worst, and I certainly would put Nero in that category, got a witness of the good news of Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't show the mercy of God, I don't know what does. The writer here says, Nero had never heard words as he heard from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. But for some reason, which you and I will never fully understand, it's the mystery of sin, Nero did not choose to follow Jesus Christ. He did not choose to repent and to say yes to Jesus Christ. And have you ever read about the, the death of Nero? how he heard that the crowd was coming for him. Some of the soldiers with the crowd was coming for him and he, he panicked. I believe he asked his servant to kill him and eventually I believe he committed suicide himself because he was terrified of what the crowd would do to his body. How would he face death? Would he have the peace of Christ upon him? You know, I've thought about these types of things a lot. And I have friends who, and I can think of my own background where we used to laugh at things like this, think it was a big joke. And Christianity is just for the weak and the stupid. And we've had people nationally like Dawkins and Sam Harris and Hitchens and others who have not only said it's for the weak and, and, and the, the ones who need a crutch, have you ever heard of that? But that we are like a pestilence in society. And it sounds like they just like to wipe us off the face off the earth. And then this Christopher Hitchens got throat cancer. One of the most articulate, brilliant Englishmen I've ever heard. Atheist. And I, I believe right down to his, to the final hours of his life, he still defied God. Amazing thing is, that his brother, who also was an atheist, got converted. His name is P Peter Hitchens, if you want to get on the internet and check these things out. So there you have two brothers, probably both very clever and brilliant and talented in their own way, 
One turns to Christ, and as far as we know, one dies in his sins. You know, there's something about life, and especially death, that is the great leveler. They say there's not many atheists in a, in a foxhole. Have you ever heard that said? I don't know. The atheists would obviously disagree with us on that. But to me, it's tremendously comforting, and I believe it's absolutely true that only in Christ do we have any chance of eternal life. So Paul faces death. I don't know how much time he had to think it through, but soon they would take him from that foul dungeon, and they would drag him out apparently with very, very few witnesses, because it seemed wherever Paul was, people heard the gospel and people got saved. They weren't going to allow that. So they took him out, and because he was a Roman citizen, they couldn't crucify him, which is the worst of the worst of all deaths. And so the executioner came out. The blade is about to come down upon the Apostle Paul. What's he thinking? Does he still have the joy that he spoke of in Philippians? Does he still believe in, as he says in Colossians, that Christ is all in all? Does he believe, as it says in Ephesians, that he's chosen? Or in Romans, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The blade comes down and cuts his head off and his blood spills into the Roman Italian soil. And he says, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me no doubt, no hesitation. Can you think and believe the same way as he did? There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not just for me only. What does the rest of the text say? But for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, it seems obvious to me which side I want to be on. From a human standpoint, Paul was the loser. Paul was the one who really messed up, shot his mouth off too much, and paid for it with his life. But from a divine perspective, he was the champion, the one who truly fulfilled your purposes. And I pray, Lord, the same for us too. May we not look to the accolades of this world. May we realize that what we have, as far as this world is concerned, is temporary. It can disappear in a second. But what we have with you is eternal. So may each man and woman, boy and girl here this morning be trusting only, solely in Jesus Christ. And Lord, if we're doing that, then all of these promises are ours. 
We can cherish them, we can memorize them, and we can apply them as we fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for the witness of Paul. And Lord, the work is not finished. Christ has not come yet. So may we leave this building with the faith and the inspiration of the Apostle Paul upon us. And may we spread good news to our society in which we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.